Dripping down science. The naked scientists. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Naked Scientists. As it's Easter, we're bringing you a special program this week based on the Diamond Light Source podcast. This is a bi-monthly podcast produced by me, Mira Senthilingam, at The Naked Scientists, where we reveal how synchrotron radiation can be used to probe and find answers to a wide variety of scientific questions. We'll be hearing how X-rays can be used to visualise proteins, such as those involved in DNA repair, as well as the role of proteins such as angiotensinogen in conditions such as preeclampsia. We've shown specifically the change of angiotensinogen to the more active oxidised form takes place in preeclampsia. It opens prospects for the treatment of what has otherwise been a very resistant condition, that is the high blood pressure of pregnancy that is the accompanying and, and prime feature of preeclampsia. We'll also be looking out into our environment to discover how synchrotrons can provide insight into new ways of decontaminating nuclear waste sites, as well as design a new form of solar cell made of plastic. The idea is that if you could produce these things on a plastic substrate, that essentially you could go down to your local DIY supermarket and buy a big roll of this stuff and just pin it to your side of your house and, and produce it, uh, your electricity very cheaply. And as well as this more affordable type of solar energy, we'll also be moving into the field of technology, to explore a new form of magnetic material that can be used and controlled to provide a faster, more compact form of data storage. So a diverse range of scientific challenges and discoveries coming your way this week in this special edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Mira Senthilingam. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. We kick things off this week, exploring a protein that could help in the fight against hypertension and preeclampsia. Hypertension, or high blood pressure, and preeclampsia, a form of high blood pressure in pregnant women, are both unfortunately quite common, with 10 women and 1,000 babies dying of preeclampsia in the UK every year. There are various factors involved in inducing hypertension, our heart rate, the volume of our blood and also the constriction of our blood vessels, causing them to narrow and therefore increase our blood pressure. This latter cause is what Robin Carroll from the University of Cambridge is looking into, and he told me more about the proteins that are behind this constriction. A major factor is a peptide hormone called angiotensin, which directly results in a tightening of vasoconstriction um, of small blood vessels. Angiotensin originates from a large protein that circulates in our blood called angiotensinogen. The hormone is released by an enzyme from the kidney called renin, and the renin cleaves off the terminal part of this circulating protein, angiotensinogen, to give this very small peptide hormone, angiotensin. You've been looking at the actual structure of this angiotensinogen protein to see just what happens to it, I guess, to release angiotensin. 
Um, exactly. And uh, the first and very satisfying finding was that angiotensinogen is far from being a passive source of the hormone. It interacts in a very active way with the enzyme renin. The cleavage site that renin attacks to release angiotensin is buried within the angiotensinogen molecule. And we've demonstrated this and also able to demonstrate the way that the interaction with renin results in the cleavage site becoming accessible, changing from the interior of the molecule to the exterior of the molecule. So we're now seeing that angiotensinogen plays an active and positive part in what is the initiation of the main process controlling blood pressure. What actually happens to it for it to perhaps become exposed? The surprise to us and to all was the presence of a hidden switch, a fine-tuning mechanism that controls the activity of the interaction between renin and angiotensinogen that releases the hormone. And this switch is based on a disulfide bond, a bond between two sulfurs. In the case of angiotensinogen with this disulfide bond, they uh, are liable or susceptible to being broken as the molecule changes from an oxidising to a reducing environment. In a reducing environment, the bridge between the two sulfurs is broken and the two parts of the molecule can move apart. In an oxidising environment, the two sulfurs are bonded and held together and they hold the molecule in a more active shape, that is, will more readily release the hormone angiotensin that controls blood pressure. If um, the angiotensinogen is in an oxidised environment, does that mean, therefore, it, it is more exposed and therefore more likely to be cleaved by the renin and for the hormone to be released? That is right, that the molecule exists in two forms and they switch from one to another as the protein moves from a reducing environment to um, an oxidising environment. Why would, um, say, a therapeutic approach using this early, perhaps, mechanism be better than current, say, treatments for hypertension? It needs to be emphasised that what we're looking at is the initiating stage in the release of the hormone angiotensin. There is a second stage in which the hormone is refined into the form that, that actually interacts with the arteries. And this second stage is controlled by an enzyme for which there are have now been designed a series of inhibitors that people may well know them as the ACE inhibitors, A-C-E inhibitors, that are used very effectively to treat blood pressure. But the problem is, or one problem is, that the use of ACE inhibitors is contraindicated for the very best reasons in uh, pregnancy. And it is in, in pregnancy that we perhaps get one of the greatest challenges of hypertension for people in the prime years of their life. The condition of preeclampsia, uh, which is so common, it affects 2%, 2 to 7% of, uh, of all pregnancies, is still not well understood. So what we've done is add a facet of understanding because we've, to the understanding because we've shown specifically the change of angiotensinogen to the more active oxidised form takes place in preeclampsia. 
it opens prospects for the treatment of what has otherwise been a very resistant condition, that is the high blood pressure of pregnancy that is the accompanying and, and prime feature of preeclampsia. What actual stage is the research at now? How far away do you imagine we are from that perhaps being a, a therapeutic used? The quick answer is that, that now we're beginning to understand the mechanisms. It opens various approaches, theoretical and otherwise, to treatment. And that could mean many years ahead. But there's been an intensive effort made to look at therapies for hypertension. And um, now as we look at at the various treatments that have been tried or or being given in trials, certainly in in their early stages, there are some that we feel, in fact, might be relevant to the basic process that's occurring. And we hope our findings will be an encouragement to these people and uh, eventually to pharmaceutical companies to follow this up. Robin Carroll, Emeritus Professor of Haematology from the University of Cambridge. Now, staying on the topic of proteins, we move on to those involved in repairing our DNA. Due to various factors, such as UV, our DNA is constantly being damaged and organisms need to repair that damage on a regular basis in order to survive. There are many proteins involved in this repair, one of which is XPD, a protein that Jim Naismith at the University of St Andrews has been looking into. In humans... There are a number of diseases. Um, the most famous, I, I think, or infamous is the so-called children of the moon syndrome. These are children who have to be kept away from sunlight uh, because they are unable to properly repair their DNA damage. What that means is these children often develop cancers and uh, are fairly other significant illnesses. There's also other phenotypes to do with uh, hair. You get a brittle hair disease and you also have some cases deformities during development. So what are the malfunctions almost that happen in these proteins that result in them not working? So what happens in these diseases? Uh, Well you're you're unable to unwind the DNA and start the repair and what we were able to show uh, is that the mutations for one disease cluster in one part of the protein and the other phenotype the the brittle hair disease clusters in, in a different section of the protein. How have you set about looking at the structure then of this XPD protein? Humans are quite similar to uh, bugs called archaea. There are three trees of life, if you like, so bacteria tree of life, the eukaryotic tree of life, which is us, or we're in that tree, and then there's a third branch called archaea. And archaea and eukarya diverged later than the split from bacteria. So what that means is that we are actually quite similar in some ways to these archaeal organisms, and in one of the ways we're similar is in DNA repair. Now, the human enzyme is extraordinarily difficult to work on. It's longer, bigger. The archaeal equivalent of XPD is much more tractable to biophysical methods, and so we were able to clone that, purify it, crystallize it, and determine the structure of the diamond synchrotron. But the key residues that are mutated in human disease can be mapped very easily on to the structure from the archaeal organism. And in fact, you can test those by biochemical methods to see if you can recapitulate defects in the protein. So having looked at the structure of this protein then in the archaeal versions of the proteins, what have you found about the structure of this particular protein? We found that one set of mutations clustered in what's called the ratchet Helicases work by expanding ATP, and as they do so, they drag a duplex DNA over its face and break it up into separate strands. And so one set of mutations obviously exert their effect by working there, and that's actually the interface between two parts of the protein. 
The other seven mutations are distant from that, and what they will do is affect the ability of the helicase to recruit other proteins into the cluster, because in all organisms, um, but especially in higher organisms, such a complicated thing as DNA repair often brings other proteins in, and you get these multi-protein complexes. And in fact, the other set of mutations cluster exactly where you would predict other proteins would dock. Quite different biochemical phenotypes. One will inactivate helicase activity. The other one, the helicase activity is normal. But what it does is it stops that helicase being able to recruit other proteins. So there are two factors, really. So it's a two-step process almost in this first early stage of DNA repair. Yes. And if you have the inability to unwind the DNA, you get the very severe illness, you know, the cancer, the children of the moon. If you have the ability to unwind the DNA, but not to bring other proteins to the the party, you get the other very severe, but not quite as severe uh, diseases. Brittle hair, brittle hair sounds like, oh, well, you could live with that. But actually, there's actually a lot of abnormalities that go with that that are very significant. So what real kind of insight has this structural insight really provided in terms of understanding the diseases and what other insight could be achieved through this? So what the structure enabled us to do was to segregate why one set of mutations caused a particular disease and another set caused an apparently totally different disease. And so that wasn't known. You couldn't segregate them before, but with the structure you can. Now, the fact that the cause of one of the pathways only affects the recruitment of other proteins and leads to, in some ways, a more subtle, but as I emphasized, a rather serious illness, that may help us disentangle or may help others disentangle the pathway involved that goes wrong in DNA repair in those people, and that type of pathway that goes wrong in DNA repair is often seen in cancer. So these mutations may allow or may permit some guidance to see what other mechanisms are involved in DNA repair and possibly help in understanding cancer. Jim Naismith, Professor of Chemical Biology at the University of St Andrews. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to a special Easter edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Mira Senthilingam. And this week, we're bringing you highlights from the Diamond Light Source podcast, a bi-monthly programme produced by us here at The Naked Scientists. Still to come, we'll be discovering a new form of solar cell made using plastics that could make this source of power more accessible and affordable in the future. But first, we move into the technology arena and focus on the science of data storage or magnetic media. Paolo Rodelli is Professor of Experimental Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and he uses the diamond light source to study a class of materials known as multiferroics. These are materials that respond to both magnetic and electric fields, a response which results in a change in their properties. And an understanding of this change could enable better control of magnetic media in the future, as Paolo explained. Essentially, multiferroics are materials that can be addressed using two different fields. Current materials uh, can be read or written, but just based on their magnetic properties. But uh, we know already Einstein's in the theory of relativity stipulated that uh, really magnetism and electricity are two manifestations of the same phenomenon. They can be interchanged with each other if you have an object that goes to speeds comparable to the speed of light. And this is precisely the phenomenon that we are exploiting to create materials that can be read and written electrically, which is a much more efficient, uh, energy efficient and faster way to address materials, but they can still hold the information magnetically, which is very, very efficient as, as well. 
what would the benefits then be of this, say? We can make electronic uh, devices and, and in particular information storage as well as information processing devices that are smaller, they consume less energy. We all know how annoying it is to have a, a laptop that runs out of battery or uh, an iPod that runs out of battery. So multiferroic materials are, are materials where magnetism or electronic fields can be applied in order to change the magnetic properties. Exactly. So the idea here is that you can apply an electric field rather than magnetic field and, and change the information state of a bit. And so could you give some examples then of some multiferroic compounds or materials? So multiferroics will tend to be oxides, simple oxides, some things like chromium oxide, iron oxide, common rust, uh, or rather the, the black form of, uh, of, of uh, iron oxide called magnetite also is believed to have multiferroic properties. Simple binary oxide with a simple single metal bound to oxygen, all the way to more complicated structures, structures that we call, for example, hexaferrite, have, have four or five different metals in them, but they're still rather common place materials that you can find them in fridge magnets if you want. And so all of these materials that you've mentioned, they vary with complexity, but they could all potentially then have uses in things like data storage. They could all, all have uh, uses if we can, uh, first of all, understand how they work. And this is part of what we're trying to do at Diamond. And, and, and also integrate with current electronic devices. This is the big challenge, particularly for applied research, because you have to essentially put these uh, different types of materials on a chip that normally only has silicon and silicon oxide. And this is the big technological challenge. And well, so as you mentioned, then you need to you're looking into, I guess, some of the fundamentals of it to understand it a bit more. And well, a key, a key issue seems to be the actual temperature that these multiferroics have to run at in order to induce this change in the properties. It is very much an issue, but we know that we already have materials that run at room temperature or even at higher temperature. Things like chromium oxide, for example, would have the properties at room temperature. But sometimes we also study materials in which these properties are displayed at very low temperature. These materials are the first one in which a new type of phenomenon or underlying principle of multiferroicity is manifest. And, and then they are the first models that we have to try to understand this phenomenon. This is why we, we focus sometimes on materials that only wor uh, work for the moment at low temperature. And if we can crack the secret in a sense, then we can ask our chemist colleagues to find the right combinations of uh, elements uh, so that these, these materials will then be able to work at room temperature. Well, at Diamond, you're using um, techniques such as X-ray scattering then to look at the particular structures or arrangements. What have you been able to find out then? What's been a recent, perhaps, discovery? What we can do, for example, is, is uh, directly see the changes in the magnetic structure as we apply an electric field. The, the arrangement of the magnetic moments in the crystal sets up a tiny electric field and this responds to the external electric field. And as you move the internal field, the internal polarization of the crystal by a, uh, an external force, then the spins follow. So you switch the spin system by applying an electric field. This is the ultimate goal of what we are trying to do. And if we could do that at room temperature in a material that is cheap and can be integrated in electronics, we will have reached the goal of our research. Understanding then how these particular materials work and function and change their properties like that, what's it then hoped that they could be used for? So we're hoping to use these materials to store information in a magnetic form and then to change the, information, the state of information, say from uh, zero to one in a bit, 
but rather than doing it by applying a magnetic field, which is cumbersome uh, and it cannot be really scaled down to very, very tiny dimensions, we could apply an electric field, which is much more localized. It has very low, low energy consumption when we put it in a device. And, and uh, you can have a much more compact, faster and uh, overall better system. Paolo Ridelli from the University of Oxford explaining how multiferroic materials could soon be used to provide faster, less energy-consuming forms of data storage and processing. And if you found this insight into magnetism interesting, the current edition of the Diamond podcast investigates this field further and is available at thenakedscientists.com forward slash diamond as well as on iTunes. We move into the environmental sciences now, more specifically the remediation of contaminated land sites. Sam Shaw from the University of Leeds has been using x-rays at the diamond light source to find out how inorganic materials such as rust, which is usually considered a nuisance, could be used to benefit our environment. Most of us are aware of the brown rust that forms on bikes or cars, but Sam works on a different form, which is green. Well, green rust is very similar to rust. It's a, an iron oxide phase, but green rust is, well, it gets its name simply from its colour. But it has a slightly different chemistry to uh, normal rust. It contains both iron 2 and iron 3, um, the two different oxidation states of iron. And that's what gives its green colour. Iron 2 is, produces blue compounds, iron uh, 3 is yellow. You mix them together, you get green rust. But the special properties of green rust are that it is able to immobilise um, particular contaminants by changing their chemical state and thereby reducing their impact on the environment and potentially be applied to uh, remediate contaminated land sites. So what particular contaminants can it immobilise and where do you actually find green rust? Well, in terms of the contaminants, there's a wide range of inorganic contaminants from chromium, which um, is a particular problem uh, across the world. It was an industrial legacy of uh, uh, chromium smelting in uh, Europe and, uh, and America, which has left a, a lot of chromium wastes. Also, uh, radionuclides like uranium, technetium, um, which are potentially hazardous, for example, leaking from a nuclear waste repository. But also organic contaminants, um, for example, trichloroethylene, uh, which is uh, a widely uh, distributed contaminant. In terms of where you get it, in nature, it's extremely rare. Because it contains this iron-2 component, it's very sensitive to air oxidation. And so it's very difficult to find. So when I say it actually it's rare, it's rare to find it because it's very difficult to characterise. Because as soon as you dig it up, and you might um, dig in the soil and, and find some green patches, but they quickly turn brown. And this is one of the challenges of studying this phase because it's very air sensitive. That to actually study it, we have to mimic the conditions where it occurs um, in very low oxygen levels. And that's what we've been doing on the synchrotron. So how do you actually then set about recreating these conditions and actually looking at the reactions of green rust here at the synchrotron? Well, what we've done is we've developed a reaction cell which can mimic the conditions of green rust formation uh, within, say, a soil or potentially uh, in a contaminated land site to mimic the pH, the acidity or or the alkaline nature of the solution, and also the redox potential, so how oxidising or reducing the environment is. So, and that's really controlled by the amount of oxygen that's, that's present in the system. And by doing this, we can synthesise and form the green rust, but also by flowing the 
a solution where we're forming the green rust through the synchrotron beam, through a capillary which is mounted on the synchrotron beam, we can characterise the formation reaction and the process by which the molecular structure of green rust is, is built. And so what is the structure of green rust and what have you been able to see about how it actually immobilises various contaminants? Well, we've been using X-ray scattering to characterise the formation of the structure. And what we've found is by using uh, in situ uh, wide and small angle X-rays going on I-22 here at Diamond, the formation reaction is a multi-stage process where we get an initial formation of very poorly ordered, virtually amorphous nanoparticles. And then the iron 2 absorbs onto their surface and this induces a recrystallization reaction which forms the uh, green rust. We've also been adding contaminants, particularly uranium and selenium, to look at when these contaminants become immobilised during the formation process. And so knowing this information, how could these contaminants be treated or immobilised? So it seems green rust can only exist in very limited conditions. So given that, how is it possible to then create it to then decontaminate land? That's a very good question. And what we've learn using the synchrotron is we really understood the geochemical conditions in which green rust is stable and from this we've been able to develop key formulations and, uh, and recipes of green rust which we're beginning to use to immobilize particular contaminants but it's true the air sensitive nature of the green rust is a problem and we have gone some way to stabilizing the green rust but uh, the future work we're doing will be to develop a a more and more stable form with wider applications for the green rust materials. Sam Shaw from the University of Leeds. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientists bringing you features and highlights from the Diamond Light Source podcast. So far, we've heard how synchrotron radiation can be used to study proteins involved in hypertension, as well as green forms of rust that could decontaminate land. As well as medical conditions and cleaning up our environment, another big issue in science today is how to provide renewable forms of energy on a mass scale. Solar cells made of silicon have increased in popularity over the years, but a continuing flaw is their expense and accessibility. Now, David Lidsey and his team at the University of Sheffield have been working on a new form of solar cell that uses plastic instead of silicon, which could make this energy source a lot more accessible. The materials that we are interested in are very special plastics that have been synthesised for us by um, synthetic chemists here at Sheffield. They've got two really important properties. Firstly, they absorb light over a broad range of wavelengths, so where you might see a uh, film of polythene, which essentially is largely transparent, the materials that we have can absorb light all the way from green wavelengths right the way through to the near-infrared. And, of course, if you want to harvest sunlight energy, you want to pick up as much of the sun sunlight as possible. So that's one property which is important. And the second property is that they're electrical semiconductors. So basically, once you've put a charge carrier, an electron, for example, in these materials then that will flow through the material if you apply a field to it. So the photovoltaics are made from these thin films of semiconductors um, and essentially we have our plastic which is mixed with another material called a fullerene. Now fullerene is basically carbon-60, so this is a a molecule that was discovered 20 years ago or so. It's uh, one of the, the pure forms of carbon. 
But how would this actually work? And I mean, I assume it, it's reasonably new. You're always looking to use plastic, so people haven't until now. So what are the challenges really faced with using this as a material? There are a number of challenges. One is extending the red absorption wavelength, so we want to go to further and further into the infrared. And the second challenge is, is actually getting these charges out of the thin films. So basically you have this fullerene molecule, and when the polymer is excited by the absorption of a photon, an electron jumps from the polymer molecule to the fullerene molecule, and this act of what's called charge transfer essentially creates a tiny current inside the device. When that happens over millions and millions of molecules, then we can extract enough of a current out of the device because of this charge transfer process. The thing is, though, that when we take our polymer and we mix it with this fullerene molecule, the polymer and the fullerene phase separate. So, of course, you've seen a uh, salad dressing made by the mixture of oil and vinegar. And, of course, the oil and vinegar separate. When we mix the polymer and the fullerene together, they'll also phase separate. Now, this is beneficial for us because we want to create parts of the film which are polymer-rich and other parts of the film which are fullerene-rich. And these almost create little charge transfer wires inside the material. But if they actually phase separate on too large a length scale, then this actually makes the device not work very efficiently. If it phase separates on a very, very fine length scale, they also don't really work very efficiently because you can't form these little charge transfer pathways. So essentially, one of the tricks is to actually know how to get the film to phase separate on exactly the right length scale. And this is one of the things that we've been very interested in and we've been using the diamond light source and other techniques to actually study the, the, the structure of the film. What has this actually enabled you to see then in detail the, about the process? Now, what we find is that for most of the time when this solution is drying, actually nothing much happens at all. And this, I guess, is, is a sort of watching the paint dry phase. But when the solvent evaporates to leave only about 50% of the film containing solvent, things actually suddenly get very exciting. And what happens is we see a very rapid crystallization of the polymer. And this process happens in about 5 to 10 seconds. And, and suddenly we see that the solvent, as the polymer molecules start to crystallize, it's very difficult for the solvent to leave the film. The kinetics of the crystallization of the polymer tells us that um, the crystals first form around sort of impurities or little aggregates that exist within the film, and um, we see a crystallization that happens essentially in one dimension. So we see a one-dimensional crystallization of the polymer. And thirdly, we actually find that as the polymer crystallizes, we can actually see that the crystallization and the arrangement of the molecules in the crystallites improves. Basically, their packing gets tighter and tighter. There's a general reduction in kinks and twists in the molecules. So it's really that the whole picture, the, the way that the solvent evaporates, the dynamics of the, the crystallization, and basically the, the improved packing of the molecules tells us really, gives us an overall sort of picture of the, the, the processes that, that occur as the film dries. So having been able to see this then, what stage would you say your research is at the moment? So have you actually got, say, a final design that you would want to go into production then to have plastic incorporated into our solar cells? Well, at the moment, the, the sort of solar cells that we are producing have an efficiency between, say, 4 and 8%. So this means that between 4 and 8% of all of the sunlight energy that falls onto the solar cell or is absorbed by the solar cell 
is actually converted into electrical power. Now, silicon, our big rival, as it were, has an efficiency between, say, 15 and 20%. So you can see that we're actually quite far behind silicon, really. So one of the big challenges now is to actually improve the efficiency of the organic-based system up towards the efficiencies of the inorganic. Now, it's possible that we'll never actually get to the efficiencies that you get with the inorganic, but the big advantage with using polymers is that they're very, very cheap to produce and they're very, very cheap to make thin films from. So although it may not match the efficiency of silicon, the fact that it's cheaper will mean that hopefully more places and more people will be using it. Well, exactly. And, and so the idea is that if you could produce these things on a plastic substrate, that essentially you could go down to your local DIY supermarket and buy a big roll of this stuff and just pin it to your ha side of your house and, and produce it, uh, your electricity very cheaply. And really there's a huge amount of land area which is essentially redundant in parts of the country. So, you know, the roofs of out-of-town supermarkets or the sidings of railways or the sides of motorways, all of these places, you don't actually really want to do very much with them. And if you could actually cover these at very, very low cost with a very flexible, thin photovoltaic film, you can actually produce a huge amount of electricity. David Lidsey from the University of Sheffield. Now, that's it for this special edition of The Naked Scientists, bringing you features from the Diamond Light Source podcast. However, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to hear more about the diverse range of science taking place at Diamond, the podcast is published every two months and you can access previous and current episodes at thenakedscientists.com forward slash diamond or else on iTunes. We'll be back with another special edition of The Naked Scientist next week, bringing you highlights from Chris's adventures at the AAAS conference, which took place in Washington earlier this year. So join us next week for the latest stateside developments in science. But until then, I'm Mira Senthilingam, and thank you for listening. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.